November 13, 2015, ISIS terrorists coordinated a series of attacks in Paris, killing 130 people and injuring 416. The final attack took place when terrorists opened fire at a rock concert at the Bataclan Theater. After the attackers were either shot or blew themselves up, when police raided the theater, the hostages were freed, and a five-year-old boy was discovered alive, buried under two bodies, covered in the blood of his mother and grandmother. Both women died by becoming human shields, throwing their bodies over young Lewis to keep the bullets from reaching him. Both women died heroines, having sacrificed themselves to save the boy. Like this sacrifice, but infinitely greater, is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died in the place of sinners. Jesus did not throw himself in front of an insane terrorist, but interceded for us before God, before the holy God whom we have sinned against in untold ways. Jesus stood between us and the judgment that sinners like us deserve. More accurately, he did not stand between us and the wrath of God. He hung. He hung between us and the wrath of God. He died publicly as the only acceptable sacrifice for our sins. Jesus sacrificed himself for us, Scripture says, because of his great love and mercy. On the cross, Jesus offered his sinless life and atoning death to become the sin-bearing Savior that we need. He became the sin offering so that we could be declared righteous before God. And we remember his death for us. This is Memorial Day weekend, and we think about people who have sacrificed themselves for us. But there's a sense in which every Sunday is Memorial Day for us as believers, at least every time that we come before the Lord's table and we celebrate communion together. It is a day of memorial. It is a day to remember all that the Lord Jesus has done for us. And this sacrifice is what God wants us to think about this morning as we approach the Lord's table. So let me give you the big idea this morning. In response to the cross, God commands us to exchange our self-righteousness for the righteousness of Christ. The cross demands a response from us. In fact, God demands a response from us in light of the gospel, 
in light of the cross. The message of salvation in Jesus is not just one of several options that we ought to consider. It is the one and only good news from God, and it's actually a command from God that we as sinners are commanded to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are commanded to repent of our sin and our unbelief, no matter what outward manifestation it may have, and turn to the Lord Jesus, the one who died in our place. In response to that message, the message of the cross, God commands us to exchange our self-righteousness for the righteousness of Christ. Perhaps you're thinking, well, I'm a Christian. I'm sitting here. I'm already trusting in Jesus, so I have no self-righteousness. Well, if you've been a believer any length of time, you know that's not true. That when we come to Christ for salvation, we do relinquish at the baseline, we relinquish our self-righteousness, that is, our self-effort to become righteous, righteous enough to be accepted by God. And yet throughout our Christian life, there is this battle against pride, the pride of self-righteousness, whereby we think we're better than other people whereby we think we would never commit that sin. Or we form a little cliques based upon things that are, that are superficial compared to the unity that we have in Christ because there are still remnants of self-righteousness in our hearts. Though this is the big idea. God commands us to exchange our self-righteousness for the righteousness of Christ. To accomplish this, hearing this message and responding to it, there are several key scriptures that will prepare our hearts properly. The first is 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. If you'll open there, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 Chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians is a fascinating chapter. It begins with the Apostle Paul declaring to us who are trusting in Christ that our eternal future with God uh, is promised, it's, it's guaranteed, that the moment that we are absent from the body, that is the moment we die and our spirit vacates this earthly dwelling of ours, we go into the presence of the Lord. And there in the presence of the Lord, we wait for that resurrection day when our bodies will be raised and we will be united with our bodies again, our spirits, our bodies united to spend eternity with God in the new heavens and the new earth. This is a guarantee that God has made for us as believers in Christ. And then from that, the apostle compels those who know Christ to be serious about telling other people about this message, that we are ambassadors. We don't invent the message. We carry the message of the one who sent us, and we go into the world, and we tell the world that Jesus has died and risen again, and they must turn to him if they are to be saved. And so he says in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. What does an ambassador for Christ do? 
We are used by God to appeal to people. So as we are telling others of Christ and God's call for them to leave their sin and come to Jesus, God is actually the one who is imploring them and appealing to them through us. And so Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why? Because for our sake, he that is God the Father made him that is God the Son to be sin, not to be a sinner and not to be sinful, but to be the sin offering that we needed. That he made Jesus to be the sin offering, the one who knew no sin, so that in him, that is in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. This is this glorious exchange that happens at the moment that any sinner of any stripe turns to Jesus. Jesus takes the sin away, that's called forgiveness, and then he gives to us his righteousness. That then becomes the grounds of our being justified before God, declared righteous. So when we come to Jesus for salvation, we are exchanging our sin for his righteousness. This is the gospel. This is at the very heart of the gospel. So this is what is on our minds this morning. What does God mean when he tells us that we are to exchange our self-righteousness for the righteousness of Christ. That's what we need in our minds and in our hearts in order to properly prepare for the Lord's Supper. So to take the Lord's Supper properly and with all this in our minds, there are two responses that God wants from us today. Number one, realize that Jesus exchanged his righteousness for your sin when he died in your place so that you can be justified before God. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that Jesus became less than righteous? No, never. He is the eternal son of God. He is absolutely sinless, absolutely pure. But what it does mean is that in taking upon himself our sin, he was treated as though he was unrighteous. He was treated as if he had committed every sin of every sinner who would one day come to faith in him. That's how he was treated. And so it's so important for us to realize this, that it is the righteousness of Christ that is given to us as a gift of grace received through faith that is the basis of you and I ever, ever, ever being able to stand before God justified, that is, declared righteous. Because our sinfulness is too great, the chasm between our sinfulness and the holiness of God is too great to be bridged by our works. 
We cannot do enough good works. We cannot do enough religious works in order to bridge the gap between the, our sinfulness and the holiness of God. And so God bridged the gap for us, and he did it through the cross. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3, where I want to teach you a little bit more about what it means to be justified before God. To be justified means that we are declared righteous. That is, that when God looks at us in Christ, he no longer sees our sin that prevents us from coming to him, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus that is the basis for our being accepted by him. In Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, Paul argues that this righteousness that you and I need can never be received through works. Perhaps you are like me in that you were raised in a religion that taught you that Jesus started the work of salvation, but we finish it through our religious works. We finish it through our good works. And at the end of our life, we hope that our good works will be heavier than the sin on this scale, this imaginary scale that doesn't even exist. But that's what every man-made religion of works basically teaches, is that we can, through our good works, do enough to outweigh the evil that we have done. But it's impossible. And so, The apostle says in 3.20 of Romans, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law, the very purpose of the law, was not to save. The very purpose of the law was to accentuate the chasm between the holiness of God and our sinfulness. But now, verse 21 The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith, now let's through faith, not through works, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, it doesn't matter If you're male or female, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter how good you think you've been. It doesn't matter how evil you think you've been. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all must come to to God the same way. Even if we think we have sinned less than someone else. All have sinned. That's God's verdict. When he looks at mankind, he says, all have sinned, all fall short of my glory. But these sinners who fall short of God's glory, if they receive the righteousness of God through faith, then they are, verse 24, justified by his grace as a gift. Not as a wage, not as something that you worked for, but as a gift, something you must receive by faith. 
And this is brought about through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The word propitiation means satisfaction. It means that God's righteous law and his justice has been fully satisfied by the death of Jesus Christ. He has died in the place of sinners. Look at chapter 4. The question comes then, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? In other words, the mind of the reader is saying, yeah, but what about some of those Old Testament saints that, you know, they were just so good and they were so faithful and surely they were justified by their works. And Paul says, no, not on your life. For if Abraham was justified by works, verse 2, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, it, faith was the instrument by which Abraham received the righteousness of God as a gift, not as a wage. Why? Because to the one who works, verse 4, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. You only get a wage for work you've done. Anything else you receive is a gift. And Abraham didn't receive the righteousness of God as a wage, but he believed God. He believed the promise of God to one day send the Redeemer who would fulfill all of the promises of God and provide the redemption, the salvation that every sinner needs. And so then the conclusion, verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. To the one who says, rightly so, in his heart and his mind, I can never become righteous enough to be saved, to have my sins forgiven, to be accepted by God, but instead trades his sin for the righteousness of God received through faith. That person is counted as righteous. That is, the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to our account. Just as our sin was imputed to Jesus and then he was penalized for it, punished for it, so when we turn to Christ, the righteousness of God is imputed to our spiritual account. Why is this so important? It is so important because it is not enough to be forgiven to be with God forever. You must also be 100% righteous. That's a big problem for us, isn't it? That's the biggest problem that we have. It's not enough to be merely forgiven. I mean, forgiveness is great. Don't get me wrong. Oh, the freedom of forgiveness. And we sang so much about the freedom that comes to us through the work of Christ 
on the cross. But we need more than forgiveness. We need righteousness. How are we going to get that? Through works? No way. No way, because even the best of our works flow from a heart that is still corrupt. It's being made new as a believer, but it's still laced through with corruption. And so we must receive the righteousness of God by faith. And when that happens, then we finally come to be at peace with God. That's what chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we have been declared righteous by faith on the grounds of the work of Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our world is filled with people who are looking for peace. They're looking for external peace in a world that will always be filled with war and hatred. Or they're looking for inner peace, and they're running down every possible road, not realizing that experiential peace can only come through positional peace. That is, horizontal peace can only come through vertical peace. We must be at peace with God, having our sins forgiven by God, and having the righteousness of God by faith, so that then we can experience inner peace and peace with other people. It's the only way. So you need to realize that Jesus exchanged his righteousness for your sin when he died in your place so that you can be justified before God. But there's a second heart response that God wants from you today, and it is this. Relinquish faith in your own righteousness and receive the righteousness of Christ through empty-handed faith in him. So there is this natural tendency on our part as sinners to trust in ourselves. Think about it. Every person who is deceived by some man-made works religion has a baseline faith in themselves. That in themselves, they can do enough good in order to be made right with God. In themselves, they can be faithful to a religious system that will then give them a ticket to heaven, a ticket into the presence of God. But to be saved, to truly believe in Christ and receive the righteousness of God imputed to our account, we have to relinquish every ounce of faith we have in ourselves and in our own goodness, and in our own ability to make ourselves right with God through works. This conclusion, this relinquishing, is what the Apostle Paul came to at the moment of his conversion to faith in Christ. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Turn right in your Bible to Philippians chapter 3, where we find one of the few times when the Apostle Paul gives us his personal testimony of conversion. Philippians 
He tells us how he came to faith in Christ. We read about it a lot in the book of Acts in regard to the external things that took place that God used to bring him to that place. But what he says to us in Philippians 3 is even better because it's the inside story. In other words, it's the story of what God did inside of him to bring him to salvation. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Well, what is the everything that Paul counts as loss? What is the everything in this context? Well, you have to go backwards. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 3, where he writes, Finally, brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. In other words, to repeat myself, to continue to tell you of the superiority of the gospel, I'll just keep repeating myself. Certainly is no trouble to me, he says, and certainly it is safe for you to continue to hear of Christ. Look out for the dogs, verse 2. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Look out for false teachers and religious leaders who say that you can be changed on the inside by what you do on the outside. That's what he's saying. Look out for those kind of people. For we are the circumcision. We worship by the Spirit of God. In other words, we are the ones who have had our hearts truly changed and cut by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself, he says, I have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, Paul is saying, if anyone thinks he was a super religious person who could have been justified by works, I'm better than he is. No self-righteousness there, right? Packed with self-righteousness. That's the whole point. Paul's unregenerate heart was brimming with self-righteousness. And he goes on to list what was on his spiritual resume. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's my spiritual resume. That's why if anybody should have confidence in the flesh to be justified by works, I am he. But, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, whatever self-righteousness I thought I had, I relinquished in exchange for Jesus, in exchange for the righteousness that comes to me as a gift of God's grace received through faith in Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss. Verse 8. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Far greater than religion that knows about Jesus but is focused on external duties and requirements and works, far greater is to actually know Jesus. I spent the first 19 years of my life knowing about Jesus, but it wasn't until the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of my heart and I saw my sinfulness for what it was and I was compelled to run to Jesus did I then for the first time know him. And now my whole life is driven by a desire to know him more intimately. That's a work of God's grace, not works. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What does he mean? He means for the sake of gaining Jesus, he relinquished all of his self-righteousness. He relinquished all of those works that caused him to think that he could be righteous before God. That I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Now, this is the key, verse 9. This is the internal work of the Spirit of God that ultimately then is what caused Saul to be converted and become Paul. That I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, circle that, of my own, that comes through the law, that is, works, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Like the Apostle Paul, who prior to being converted was a sinner just like you and I are, he needed to come to that place of seeing himself the way that God saw him. He needed to see that when it comes to righteousness, he was not only utterly bankrupt of righteousness, but he owed a sin debt that was far more than he could ever pay back to God. And he had to relinquish all confidence in his flesh that somehow he wasn't, oh, he wasn't as bad as God's word says he, he was. Not, he's not as bad as that guy who murdered 21 people in Texas this week. And yet when God looks at mankind and all the externals are stripped away, he sees man as being all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yes, there are degrees of wickedness in the way that sin manifests itself in our lives and in the world, but the baseline issue is the same. 
the baseline problem is the same. We are unrighteous. And we can only be declared righteous by God if we trust the one who says, come to me and I'll give you my righteousness and then you can rest from your works and be at peace with God. So what do we bring to God in order to be saved? We bring empty hands. That's what we bring to him. And I know that might be a struggle for some of you because you were thinking you were supposed to bring your infant baptism that your parents took care of for you. You were thinking you were supposed to bring your church attendance. You were thinking you were supposed to bring a baptism that later on you incurred. You thought you were supposed to bring your holy, your first communion to God. You thought you were supposed to bring your confirmation to God. You thought you were supposed to bring your charitable giving to God, and yet you can't bring anything because you're bankrupt. You're bankrupt. I'm bankrupt without Christ. And so we come to God with empty hands and we receive, just to receive, not to give anything, but just to receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. This is what it means to be saved. And I don't know where you're at. I don't know your heart. Only God does. But in a congregation this large, I know that there are varying degrees of faith and trust in this room. And some of you, no doubt, are still trusting in yourself. You still have faith in yourself that you'll figure this out before it's too late. You'll you'll make right the wrongs you've done in the past. You'll overcome the regrets that you have. Somehow, if you just work harder and harder and harder, and yet Jesus says, stop working. Come to me, all you who are weary because of your labors and rest in me. Rest in Jesus. So Paul makes it very clear that there are really only two kinds of righteousness. There is an imaginary self-righteousness, which we actually don't have if we look into the mirror of God's word. And there is the true righteousness, which belongs to Christ, but he's willing to give it to us when we come to him by faith. And saving faith requires this kind of exchange. There was an exchange that took place on the cross. Jesus exchanged his righteousness and all that he deserved because of that in order to be treated as the sin-bearing Savior. And now when we come to God with empty hands, we then exchange our self-righteousness, any faith in ourselves for Christ, who alone can give to us the righteousness that we need.
In Luke 18, Jesus tells a story about two men that are a picture of this. Two men went up into the temple to pray, and one said, Oh, God, look at me. Look at all the things that I have done. I don't do all those things that those really wicked people do. I might fail once in a while, but, oh, I'm not a sinner like that. And the other man couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He was so humbled and broken over his lack of righteousness that he cried out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Those two men are in this room today. You're, you're one or the other of those two men. You're either the Pharisee who is clinging to your own righteousness, supposed righteousness, and that is eventually going to be what makes you right with God, or you're like the humble, broken man who says, God, I am so sinful. I am so bankrupt spiritually. I need your mercy. And that's the only way I can ever be saved. Oh, I just hope and pray that if that's you this morning, that if you're the one who's still trusting in yourself, that today would be the day that the Spirit of God would just open the eyes of your heart to see what a futile effort it is to try to gain your own righteousness, but that you would come to God with empty hands and receive the gift of righteousness through faith in Christ. Father, as we approach the Lord's table this morning, we recognize that it is the Lord Jesus alone who was righteous enough to die in our place. He alone could solve our greatest dilemma of spiritual bankruptcy. He took our sin upon himself, paid for it fully. The resurrection is proof that you accepted his sacrifice in our place. And now the door is open. The door is open for us as sinners to turn from our self-confidence, confidence in the flesh, self-righteousness, and turn to Jesus instead to come as a humble, broken sinner who says, God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. Thank you, Father, for bringing remembrance to our minds and hearts this morning through your word. And as we take part now in the Lord's table, we pray, Father, that Jesus alone will be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen.